I'm not going to pull any punches here when I say this, but when comparing the two networks, I'm willing to come back to life and then re-die on the hill that the WB's lineup of shows over its 11-year history were by far better than UPN's. In fact, when comparing the two networks, the WB had the upper hand for most of its existence. Now, I'm not saying every single show that they put on from 1995 to 2006 were flat-out masterpieces, but when all the history books on television are written, the WB did have better quality shows, higher-rated shows, and more fondly-remembered shows than even the best episodes of shows that boldly go where no man have gone before on UPN. There were also a few shows that didn't last as long, but they still managed to find a decent enough fan base so that they could manage a second life in the form of reruns on digital TV subchannels. But I know you tune into this show to hear me ramble on about the historical context of the world of television, so I'll try my best not to cut corners. If you want a short version of how the WB rose to prominence from, say, 1995 to the year 2000, Here's a 66.6-second Cliff Notes version. Also, just so we're clear, we're not going to be referencing the Kids WB programming block this month because this is all about primetime shows only. That being said... <gasps> the WB launched on January 11th, 1995 with the Wayans Brothers, The Parenthood, Unhappily Ever After, and a show that I wish we could review if there was an episode available called Muscle, which took place at a gym and was the first WB show to get canceled. The 1995-96 season saw the network expand to Sunday night where they gave sitcoms to the likes of Harlan Williams, Mike O'Malley, Kirk Cameron, and Ellen Cleghorn. Did they ever find a successful vehicle for Ellen Cleghorn? All But God Boy's show got canceled before the season ended, while Kirk's show bit the big one in November of 1996. Also happening in 96 was the addition of Steve Harvey and Jamie Foxx's sitcoms, which were much better shows in comparison. In the winter of 97, the WB added a third night of shows on Monday, as well as getting into business with TV legend Aaron Spelling, who gave the network their first drama shows. One was Seventh Heaven, which ran for far too long, while another is an underappreciated one-season wonder called Savannah. But because it was a quality show on a low-rated network, of course it didn't stand a chance. So naturally, something had to replace Savannah on the schedule. And boy, did they in the spring of 97. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on things, but if it weren't for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the WB would never have found its identity or its reliable cash cow, teen-oriented dramas. With the launch of a new Tuesday night block in the winter of 98, if Buffy was the Hiroshima that wiped out its competition, four young teens in a North Carolina town would be the accompanying Nagasaki. From there, the floodgates would open wide for the WB with the launch of a Thursday night schedule in 1998 and a Friday night in 1999. The network soon welcomed more shows with equal appeal, including Felicity, Charmed, Angel, Roswell, the list goes on and on and on. And it was because of all these shows that the WB was actually being taken seriously as a competitor among all the major networks. <sighs> Which brings us to the year 2000. The WB would continue to see itself grow in terms of ratings, profit, and even an increasing number of affiliates that would air the network's programming, which they felt they had to do because just as quickly as they gained ground, they almost immediately lost ground by that year because when it came to looking for what's hot among a young crowd, its shelf life may only last as long as a flash in the pan. Simply put, the WB had to prove to themselves and to the rest of the media world that they were more than just the... Pretty White People with Problems Network. Pretty white kids. Pretty white kids with problems. 
the success of their youth-baiting shows under their belts, but also aging rapidly at the same time, the WB felt that the 21st century would be their chance to parlay their success in an effort to appeal to an even wider audience. What they needed was a show that had something for everybody, something that would help hold a mirror to viewers' faces and tell them that this was the world that they lived in now, and they just want to show it off. Something that was worth all the hype. Priceline.com brings you black market babies online. You pick the kid you want and the price you're willing to pay and point, click, and pow. And now. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my raccoon Faces I remember. It's WB Semba. Check, please. In Hell. We begin this story by saying that it doesn't matter if I'm alive or dead. It doesn't matter if the episode that I watch is a good one or a bad one. But no matter what state of consciousness I find myself in, I will always, always, always be an unabashed apologist for a little show called Saturday Night Live. Back when I was among the living, I used to write about the show whenever I can on a blog that only exists now as an internet doorstop these days. And before that, I used to frequent various SNL message boards to make my opinions on the show be known, shared, and, on some occasions, disagreed with civilly among the other fans who inhabited them. But no matter how either myself or others felt about that week's show... It was, and as of press time, still is, just one of those shows that you stick with through thick and thin. Two of the thinnest times took place during a rather sizable nexus point in the show's history. Thank you all for coming. Good night and goodbye. In 1980, Lorne Michaels, his cast of Not Ready for Primetime Players, and his writers left the series through a number of circumstances that are best told in a wide swath of tell-all books. They did so under the notion that the show itself was going to wrap up altogether. But there was a problem. 1980 was the absolute peak of NBC's misfortunes both in programming and in ratings. Considering what few hits the network had at that time, they simply weren't going to let the show go away. From New York, Saturday Night Live is live again. Saturday Night Live, the next generation premiere Saturday, November 15th. And before we go any further, I've made a few jokes in the past about how season six of SNL was not exactly appointment TV viewing, and I'm not the only one who thinks this. But thanks to some good friends of the show, I decided to give season six of SNL another chance. And while I'll still believe that the majority of that season is not worth writing home about, you'll be happy to know that it's a very slim majority. I'd say about a 51 to 49 split between bad and good, respectively. And yes, there are some good shows and good moments to be had that year. May I recommend the episodes hosted by Ellen Burstyn, Jamie Lee Curtis, Karen Black, Ray Sharkey, Debbie Harry, and Bill Murray, plus the hostless show at the end of the season that featured Chevy Chase and Al Franken. So you got that, everybody? I don't think season six of SNL was that bad. 
though I would like to reserve a lightning strike for Malcolm McDowell's 1980 episode because even the most ardent of fans can concede that it was one of the, if not the absolute, worst episode of all time. But I digress. So, why bring this up at all? Because among the new hires the show made that year, particularly in the writer's room, we're going to shed the spotlight on one of them. One, Mr. Terrence Terry Sweeney. In 1980, Sweeney, a few years removed from college with a degree in arts and with showbiz on his mind, decided to take a chance on getting his foot in the door. This next piece of trivia doesn't exactly have a verifiable citation, so please take this with a grain of salt. But one day, while in Manhattan, Sweeney took it upon himself to buy several dozen sandwiches from New York's Carnegie Deli. Sweeney then took the sandwiches along with a couple spec sketches he wrote over to NBC's 30 Rock headquarters. He then managed to convince the security guard on duty that he was delivering lunch to the offices of SNL. The guard agreed, Sweeney got in, and he delivered the sandwiches to the person who had replaced Lorne Michaels that season, Gene Demanian. Upon realizing that nobody in the office ordered lunch and that a possible security breach had taken place, Sweeney told the truth to Domanian that he snuck in just so he could show her the scripts that he wrote. While we're not sure if the next thing happened because SNL was in need of new talent at that time, or Sweeney simply had balls of steel for pulling it off, or maybe because the stuff that he wrote actually made her laugh, but Domanian hired Sweeney as a writer. Unfortunately, his tenure as a writer would last as long as that doomed season, 13 episodes. But Sweeney was not to be deterred. For the next few years, Sweeney and his writing partner and also future husband, Lanier Laney, would team up for a variety of stage shows around New York. One of them, called Band in France, caught the attention of a major player in showbiz, bringing us to the other side of the SNL nexus point. By that point, it had righted itself. So it was sort of a surprise when Dick decided that he wanted to leave. In 1985, it was announced that the show's patriarch, Lorne Michaels, would return to the show and would also bring back with him some of the people that helped make the show run in the writing room. But because his cast of not-ready-for-prime-time players had already made a name for themselves elsewhere, and the star power of Eddie Murphy in seasons 6 through 9 moved the goalposts around considerably, Lorne knew from the get-go that he had to start fresh while maintaining the show's architecture. Among the many hires that he would make for SNL's 11th season, Michaels was so impressed with Sweeney's work on stage that he not only hired him to be a cast member, but also as a writer, with Lanier Laney in tow. Yes, Tootie, yes, I'm getting to that. If it hasn't been made clear by now, or by simply reading up on the guy, Terry Sweeney made history by being the first openly gay cast member in SNL history. I mention this because of an SNL documentary that, pardon the expression, came out in the mid-2000s chronicling the show's process in the 80s. In that documentary, Sweeney himself was interviewed, and pointed out that because he was openly gay, they seemed to want to make him the go-to for playing certain female roles. Or to put it in his own words... The guys would go like, hey, if we need a gay guy, we'll call you. You know, I'm like, hey, couldn't that guy be gay, the one that hosts the show? I mean, can't I just be a regular guy? They'd be like, oh no, you're the gay guy. If we need... Oh, and his address, they'd put that on and go out there. The whole point I'm trying to make here, however, is that a person's sexuality, race, color, creed gender, or any other mark of inclusion should not define how good or how bad that person's performance is on stage and screen. What matters to me is if they can entertain me or not. 
Personally, I thought Terry Sweeney was a criminally underrated part of SNL's 11th season. And I feel that if things were just a little bit different, he deserved a much longer run on the show. After that season ended, Sweeney and countless others got the axe, and SNL had to fight for its survival. The rest is history. It was all a dream. A horrible, horrible dream. Meanwhile, Sweeney and Laney forged on ahead. Not just with more stage shows, but also by coming up with a pair of screenplays for cult classic movies. 1987's Love at Stake and 1988's Shag. Then came the 1990s. And also, the duo was returned to television by finding themselves back in a sketch comedy writer's room. But not for the place you think. It almost seems impossible to talk about anything SNL-related without almost inevitably mentioning any of its main competition over five decades. And by far, Mad TV on Fox was its most formidable opponent. For 14 seasons, the show was seen as a suitable alternative to the tried-and-true over at 30 Rock, especially in its first few seasons when SNL was on the ropes and trying to reimagine itself once again. It was in 1997, the show's third season, when Sweeney and Laney found themselves diving into the writer's pool. And it was also there where the two would quickly befriend the show's head writer, Scott King. And for three seasons, the three of them would pump out some of the show's best-known works. One work in particular made one of TV Guide's many lists, a 1999 list of the 50 funniest TV moments of all time. Somewhere in the middle of that list was this sketch, which just so happened to take down a popular show from an up-and-coming TV network. WB invites you to watch the most critically acclaimed series in the history of television, Intensity. Look what I found in Ben's garbage. This is Ben's tissue. These are his boogers. Now, they're mine. See? Mine. Entertainment Weekly raves A++. There's still no cure for cancer, but at least there's intensity. And sure enough, that up-and-coming TV network took notice. The WB signed Sweeney, Laney, and King to a deal to do their own sketch comedy show for the 2000-2001 TV season. And with that new sketch series also comes a dilemma on their hands. What exactly would the three of them do to make themselves different from all the other sketch shows that have aired? Not just SNL and Mad TV, mind you, but it turns out the format's been around for a lot longer than that. Suck it to me? <laughs> longer ago than that. Even longer than that. How sweet it is! Oh, okay, you get my point. Sketch comedy has been around forever, and each of them managed to carve out its own identities. You might even say that no two sketch comedy shows are exactly alike, especially when it comes to casting the sketch players. While there are a few exceptions to the rule, sketch shows primarily feature relative unknowns in their cast who can use that show to springboard themselves into something better, whether it be meteor TV shows, movie careers, or spend a comfortable living in character acting. The ten people hired to be primetime players on this show were no exception in being plucked from relative obscurity. People like Jennifer Elise Cox, who would actually have a head start in her career by playing an even faker Jan Brady than Jerry Rochelle. Shit. Uh, uh, Steve Kramer, 
who would later go on to do a lot of voiceover work, Gavin Crawford, who would become a mainstay on the CBC's This Hour Has 22 Minutes, Chris Williams, who would have a memorable part in the Ben Stiller Vince Vaughn movie Dodgeball, among other roles, and perhaps most notably, Danielle Gaither, who would graduate to Mad TV a few years later, and, as would the show's breakout star, Frank Caliendo, who, spoiler alert, would become the best part of this show on the whole, thus parlaying not just into a spot on the Mad TV cast, but also an ongoing career in stand-up and television to this day. This is not to discount the work of the additional cast members, including Nadia Ginsburg, Christian Nelson, Shayma Tash, and the late Michael Roof. But again, there's no shame in making a living doing character acting. Of course, a fresh-faced cast is just part of the puzzle. What the show needed, in addition to talented people, writers, and sketches, was another way for the show to stand out among all the other sketch shows out there at that time. Most, if not all, of sketch comedy had a similar objective in mind, to satirize the events of the day in a manner that could range anywhere from tongue-in-cheek to blisteringly scathing. As long as there were elements of satire and parody, just about any topic was fair game. In the case of this show, both Sweeney, Laney, and King had a slightly different point of view. It's pretty easy to forget in this day and age, but the late 90s and early 2000s represented a time where you couldn't sneeze without being inundated with over-amplified tabloid gossip, whether it be from the newsstand rags or nightly information blasts disguised as entertainment news. In an October 2000 interview with the LGBTQIA plus sign magazine The Advocate, King describes the show's philosophy as being, quote, equal opportunity offenders, and that there are no sacred cows, and all of its elements are post-PC, end quote. In that same interview, Sweeney further elaborates the media's tendency to overinflate a typical news story, stating, quote, You can't be a model anymore. You have to be a supermodel. You can't be a man. You have to be sexiest man alive. This is our way to immunize against this. And thus, the name of the show and the very thing that they hoped the show would fight against. A simple four-letter word known as... Hype. A show so high up on the WB's pedestal that season that they actually rebranded their Sunday night lineup around it, calling it Hype Night in that year's marketing. Which I have to admit is a whole new level of presumptuousness. Like, they really seem to have all their eggs in the basket that year for this show. Disregarding the fact that they still had some perfectly good hit shows on the air at that time, and other hits were to come. But nope. This show was the chosen one. Thing is... With all the talk about the show throwing political correctness out the window, would hype live up to its own hype? Or is it going to be more shock value for the sake of it? Hi, Neil Kim here from Flashy Hall. The communists taking shots at everything that's overhyped. Prostitutes online. No hidden scenes. No awkward conversation. Movies, TV shows, pop stars. Nothing is sacred, baby. Britney Spears and Prince William. I love you, honey. Find out the predictable answer to that question. After the break. This here freight train. Pete Pablo. Meet a motif. 
There's only one drink fat enough to quench our thirst, and that's Turbo Sport 7! God, genius! The can's upside down! Don't talk to me like a child! I played Hamlet at Cambridge! Once again, you've ruined my concentration. Excuse me, excuse me, what's, what's my motivation? When you're thirsty, trust your gut, not some actor. That's it, I am going to my trailer! This week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. Okay, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Uh, We're not actually launching anything new. We're just going to be using our premium show to reminisce on quite possibly my favorite and also my biggest career failure. I shall say no more until you hear it. Take it away, Mike. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. October 8th. In the year 2000. George W. Bush and Al Gore fight tooth and nail for the White House. Meet the Parents gives Robert De Niro the rub to do more comedies in the twilight of his career. And at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central, the WB attempts to put a mirror up to the faces of its viewing public to let them know everything they read about in the tabloids are about to be torn a new one. Starting with one of the cast members portraying Bryant Gumbel, who at this point in time made the jump to CBS to host their fledgling morning show after years with NBC's Today. Fake Bryant is here to give us a rudimentary introduction as to what this show is about, as well as possibly looking about six years into the WB's own future. How do we make fun of all things hyped? Movies, television, sports, internet, music, what have you. But what makes hype so special is that it's on the WB. WB short for Why Bother? Nobody's watching anyway. So they can do things that other networks that'll be around for a while can't. So, basically, we're starting things off by biting the hand that feeds you. Take it from personal experience. No matter how big or how small a place it is you work for, you shouldn't do that too often unless you're allergic to the notion of making money. We continue our introduction by meeting some celebrity impersonations attempting to give the show a stamp of approval and hit below the belt at the same time. Impressions such as... Martha Stewart. Hi. It's a good thing, unless you make fun of me, and then I swear to I will tear you on you. Whitney Houston. What? I'm addicted to it. Gwyneth Paltrow after Brad Pitt dumped her for Jennifer Aniston. I bet it'll be Brad Pitt's favorite show. He loves TV trash. No offense, Jennifer. George W. Bush. I think I'm hysterical, uh, hysterical, uh... What the f- is word I'm trying to say? And even the cast of Sex in the City. I hear hype is all the rage. Well, you can watch it if you want, but I'm naked on HBO right now. <laughs> Subtle. 
This would also be as good a time as any to mention that because this takes place in the year 2000, some of the jokes in this show age with the lifespan of a mustard seed, and in some cases leave just as bad a taste in your mouth. Stay tuned for hype. Get on my seat, punk. Unfortunately, we can't play the title sequence to this show because, thanks to all that Warner Brothers money backing the show, they were able to adopt an existing pop song as this show's theme. It being the year 2000, the song Body Rock by Moby fit the bill. We're then introduced to our cast of fresh-faced hopefuls dancing around while their heads are replaced with TV sets featuring images of their faces. If that image isn't nightmare fuel straight out of the uncanny valley, I don't know what is. So now, let's skip to the show's monologue, or since the whole cast gathers on stage, I guess that makes that a dialogue, introducing the first sketch of the night. Hey, I'm Frank, and this is the first episode of Hype. We're not celebrities, but we play them on TV. Oh, yeah. And here's a little thing we call the Hype Report. Okay, that was quick. Thanks, Frank. As we get to the Hype Report to go over the week's top stories, not unlike other sketch comedy shows would also do. Firestone Tires suffered a PR nightmare when a series of accidents were blamed on their tires. After a recall of their defective product, it seemed the problem had been solved. But we here at Hype have learned much too often, things are rarely ever what they seem. We're now looking at a videotape from James Madison High in St. Charles, Illinois. As the Monarchs practice during a stellar undefeated season, they find that a 300-pound defensive lineman is not their only on-field danger. And now, let's kick it with our first sketch! While I do find the use of exploding tires to be somewhat amusing, that's got to be the most awkward transition between sketches I've seen in a long time. That'd be like if somebody gave a speech on environmental safety laws only to follow it up with Michael Buffer. Uh, Let's get So now, our actual first sketch. And with it, a reminder that the internet was no passing fad. Especially with the banner headline that America Online bought the WB's parent company, Time Warner, that year. The sketch in question has nothing to do with the merger, but more the notion that companies in general are migrating more and more to a digital world thanks to the ever-growing use of email on the job. So before we adjourn, why don't we all exchange email addresses? <clears throat> why don't I go first? I'm... Uncle Nasty Fingers at Hotmail.com. And that's fingers with a Z. I'm Donkey Dong, one for 69. Mine is Freak on a Leash at Earthlink.net. And I'm Sister Juicy Booty at Yahoo.com. And that's Sister with just an A. <sighs> okay, everybody. We're all thinking it. We might as well sing along. Hit it, Trekkie Monster! The internet is for poor. The internet is for poor. What are you doing? Why you think the net was born? Born, born, born. Now that we got that out of the way, what sketch comedy show would be complete without a commercial parody or two? See if you can guess what they're trying to sell here. Who will be the next Tiger Woods? Will it be him? Or him? Or her? Who knows? But one thing's for sure. This time, we're going to do it right. This time, he's gonna be white. Uh... The U 
U.S. Alliance of Professional Golfers. Don't worry, everything's going to be fine. Okay, that was a little envelope pushing, but remember, that article from The Advocate stated that Sweeney, Laney, and King are not looking to be PC, and the more I keep telling myself that, the more that I can possibly tolerate this show. As we now see another staple of sketch comedy shows since the dawn of time, mocking the President of the United States. In this case, it was Bill Clinton's final months in office, and the inevitable realization that some habits are hard to break. And I'm going to have to explain the context here because this scene is dialogue-free. Don't worry, we're using this scene as this week's YouTube trailer. In the aftermath of the scandal that he had involving a certain intern, said intern tried to cash in on all that happened. And aside from spending years restoring her good name, she also became a pitch woman for various goods and services. Most notably, the Jenny Craig diet system. This could only mean one thing for old Bubba. As Bill Clinton jogs past the billboard with the world's most famous intern posing seductively. Suffice to say, the president can't resist and hilarity, unfortunately, ensues. So that aired on quasi-network television. And again, as the fake Bryant Gumbel said at the beginning... Nobody's watching anyway. So they can do things that other networks that'll be around for a while can't. So props to them for being ballsy both in literal and figurative senses. Somebody disguised as comedian Janine Garofalo lends her two cents to the proceedings. Kudos to the WB for that insightful political satire. It's a good time to be alive. That's terrific, Janine. It really adds a dimension to the conversation. Act two begins with a parody of the most popular movie of that year, American Beauty, the Oscar-winning magnum opus of noted scumbag Kevin Spacey. With the popularity of the movie still fresh in people's minds, the hype masters pose a scenario where the movie ties into a promotional meal at a fast food place. A 22-year-old spoiler alert if you have yet to see the movie. You'll love the well-balanced meal inside, but your kids will love the toys. Wow! I got the self-hating, closeted, homosexual marine colonel and his bacon zombie wife. Wow, this fun meal sure is... I unscrambled my word jumble. I am not a victim. (laughs) Don't interrupt me! Honey... beauty fun me because sometimes fast food is so beautiful i feel like i can't take it it's just some trash blowing in the wind do you have any idea how complicated your circulatory system is a movie that doesn't hold up on a tv show that doesn't hold up in an odd way that's actually kind of bizarrely inspired as we move on now to another cultural touchstone of the year 2000 Yep, the show that catapulted ABC to number one that year was ripe for parody. Unfortunately, in Hype's case, they had another objective in mind. Jennifer Elise Cox from New York, New York. Yes? Jennifer, would you mind if I ask you a question? No, not at all. Would you like to follow me up to my limo to engage in A, foreplay, B, girl on girl, or C, let me sneak in the back door. Gee, none of the above. 
Why would they turn Regis Philbin into a horn dog? Okay, AT&T, do your stuff. Hello, Kathy Lee? It's you-know-who. You have 30 seconds to get me off, and they begin now. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. Oh, FH. Oh, I bet you do your slut. I'm pretty sure the writers had their reasons. As a reminder, that article from The Advocate stated in no uncertain terms that they were throwing political correctness out the window and nobody should give a fuck. So, sure, let's have Regis Philbin be a pervert for no reason whatsoever. Even though the guy never did anything perverted in his entire career. That we know about. As we now move on to... Whoa, 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 what is it, boy? Uh-oh. That's our seldom-heard telehell red alert buzzer. That only goes off when something truly tasteless is about to happen, and we may or may not have the right things to say about it. Calm down, boy, calm down. Whatever it is that set it off, I'm sure we can handle it. This video showing the woman on a stretcher flailing and, according to neighbors, screaming at the time. She may have been conscious at the time, but most likely with the level of smoke that she had held, consciousness would have um, would have decreased over time. Oh, no. I would say to anybody, you know, go for what you feel truthfully in your life and you will be rewarded a millionfold. And Haish has died. Oh, no. She survived by her two sons, Atlas and Homer. I'm so lucky. I do. I walk around with a joyous experience. I have two beautiful... Okay. This is a bit of a first for us. On the one hand, we are a show that takes down bad TV programs no matter how good their intentions were. On the other hand, we're about to see a sketch where somebody portrays someone who was notorious for having certain problems in their lives, which would normally not be a problem for us were it not for the fact that this particular person just recently, and also tragically, passed away, and the wound may still be fresh for certain individuals. This, by the way, has nothing to do with a rule that we established long ago where we won't review a show where a cast member died during its production. This is a completely different situation altogether. So now, I'm wondering if we should even be going over the sketch at all for the sake of good taste. After all, this sketch was 20 years ago, but again, the subject of the sketch is fairly recently deceased. Give me a minute or two to watch the sketch in question, what we like to call our under-review booth, and I'll get back to you. Stand by. Leather sandals, $100 oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Mm-mm-mm. Capri pants, $85. Oh, jeez. Really? Really? Oh, for two hundred dollars! Jesus Christ! Three hits of ecstasy. Oh, oh God! Oh, oh, fuck! Telling a stranger that you're God and offering them a lift to heaven on your spaceship. 
priceless. Fucking A. Oh. What the hell were they thinking? things in life are free. What am I thinking? There's Master Charm. Upon further review, no, there is nothing that we can say about this sketch, and it would be tasteless to do that. Hype's pilot episode is floating around on YouTube, so I'm going to leave it to you to cast your own judgment and let Anne Hache continue to rest in peace. So, let's move on from something potentially tasteless to... It's been a year of trouble for bleached-out rap homophobe Eminem despite stellar record sales of his Marshall Mathers LP. It seems the Caucasian sensation has managed to offend just about every possible minority group. Well, guess what, Eminem? Now it's your turn to cry. MCV is proud to present the world premiere of the debut video by openly gay rap artist Feminem. Oh, for fuck's sake! Eminem's ass, please! I say this with the most bare bones of a veneer of a positive spin as I can put on this. The year 2000 was a different time. And yes, the three people who created this show are openly gay males, so I understand completely and totally why they would put a sketch like this on in the first place. Eminem made a lot of, to put it lightly, statements involving the LGBTQIA plus sign community in his music when his Marshall Mathers LP was released that year, resulting in various forms of controversy. And both Sweeney, Laney, and King probably had all the rights in the world to be pissed off at the time. But time has a habit of marching forward. Time also has a habit of ebbing, flowing, and healing all wounds. Eminem has long since been dodgy about the subject of using certain slurs in a number of his tracks over the years. In fact, in a 2010 interview with the New York Times, he stated, quote, I think if two people love each other, then what the hell? I think that everyone should have the chance to be equally miserable if they want. My overall look on things is a lot more mature than it used to be, end quote. When the issue came up again upon the release of 2013's Rap God, he said to Rolling Stone, quote, I don't know how to say this without saying it how I I've said it a million times, but that word, those kinds of words, when I came up battle rapping or whatever, I never really equated with those words to actually mean homosexual, end quote. With all of that said, this sketch would probably work better in the year 2022 than it did in the year 2000. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Yo, Mr. Eminem. Don't worry, I'll melt in your mouth, not your hand. Hopefully, that's the last questionable thing that we see in this show. Next on Dead Hollywood Squares. Fuck this show in all of their holes to the four corners of the earth with a nuclear-powered dildo. Coming to CBS. 
Watched in more nursing homes than any other network, Dead Hollywood Squares. Blue boat for Hoofy. I'm Paul Linden. I'm taking back the center square. It's just like the old show, only this time it's more than our careers that have passed away. <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid. I can't believe I'm this much of an idiot even after I'm dead. Oh, for the love of God. Wait just a minute. I'm not dead yet. Somebody better tell the polls. I'm such a bitch. <laughs> okay, to be fair, at least whoever did the Paul Lind impression was pretty good, and the Al Gore punchline turned out to be surprisingly accurate. But showcasing Chris Farley and Princess Diana a mere three years after they both bit the dust is a little questionable. On the plus side, the sketch was less than a minute, so points for not overstaying their welcome. As we move on now to Frank Caliendo saving the motherfucking day with one of his more reliable impressions. That of William Shatner when he did bad spoken word lounge music for Priceline.com. First it was airline travel, then it was hotel rooms. Now Priceline.com brings you prostitutes online. You name the service you want and the price you'll pay, and Priceline will provide you with a whore. No hidden fees, no awkward conversation. Just set your phaser to stun and blast the lonely nights away. Warp factor. In case it hasn't been made clear yet, Frank Caliendo is a motherfucking hero for making this show watchable, and he absolutely deserved a lot better than this. And thankfully, he's earned it over time. As we now get to the final piece of this scientific experiment disguised as a sketch comedy show, Hype's hypothetical tale of what would happen if Prince William of England had a relationship with Britney Spears. Bearing in mind, this was about seven years shy of her infamous public meltdown and 22 years before she was released from her conservative ship stemming from said breakdown, as well as the reminder that the year 2000 was a different time. But before we get to that, we need a framing device to set things up. And my size tail be Brittany and the prince are sitting a secret rendezvous weekend together at the palace while the rest of the royals are vacationing in Scott Lane. Then again, my size also tell me Kevin Spacey straight. <laughs> Whitney Houston is off the drugs. <laughs> and the Dixie chicks are pretty. Well, like Meatloaf says, two out of three ain't bad. As we now head to Buckingham Palace to see what might have been. I love you, honey! <laughs> what? Very good. Uh, I'm leaving. I'd say you've had enough. I did mean it again. <laughs> May I go now? I am so sorry. That took me totally by surprise. <laughs> me too. What do y'all call the squirts in England? Actually, we don't. Uh, I'm off now. I love you, honey. 
Yes. <laughs> Leave Billy alone! Please. <laughs> and while we're now picturing 17-year-old Kate Middleton watching this on British television and thinking to herself, I can't let that happen to that sweet boy, there's really nothing more to say about this show. Except we have to. Here now is a scene from next week's show, which features, but is not limited to, the presidential candidates engaging in SmackDown-like behavior. World Championship Wrestling's first presidential debates, right here on TNT Nitro. Frank Caliendo once again saving the motherfucking day. Uh, uh, hey, this is, this is my head right here. And a phenomenon simply known as Tom Green. I know where I put it. And sweet Satan on a stick with strawberries, that wraps up Hype. A show that miraculously lasted 17 episodes before getting trashed in February 2001. A show that was up against two network movie nights and the waning years of the X-Files. But more importantly, a show that got away with a lot, only to wind up with so very little in return. Yo, Mr. Eminem. Don't worry. I'll melt in your mouth. Not your hand. Okay, I've heard enough. Burn it! Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. I counted at least four sketches in the pilot and countless others throughout the run of the series that used sex as an overt punchline. Knowing the audience that they were aiming for, I think it's safe to say that they used lust as a weapon here. Not to mention a couple sprinkles of violence, not just here with the exploding tires or episode two with the wrestling presidential candidates, but there was also a Christmas show featuring a running sketch involving Frank Caliendo's John Madden impression accidentally blowing up a little girl. which I'm sure made more sense in context. But just in case, tag it for violence anyway, no matter how cartoony it is. To say nothing of the celebrity impressions on this show, with the exception of Frank Caliendo as the show's silver lining and maybe half of the cast, everybody else not only does flat-out unfair parodies of the people they're portraying, but also unfair on a technical standpoint, i.e. they don't even come close to accurate vocally. Then again, Chevy Chase established centuries ago that you don't have to look and or sound like Gerald Ford in order to play him. So in that regard, I'm not going to say that the impressions are fraudulent, but some of them do still feel like heresy compared to the real deals. And there was also that business in the beginning where they talk about how nobody's watching the WB, therefore they're biting the hand that feeds them. I don't think jokes like that and any other jokes that they made throughout the rest of the series was going to do them any favors, so there's a pretty good chance that WB may have just canceled them out of spite, therefore a very treacherous move on both sides. But that's just the show on the surface. If Terry Sweeney, Lanier Laney, and Scott King's mission was for them to put on a show that steamrolled the lines of good taste while mocking pop culture at the same time, I can't exactly fault them for doing their jobs here, because this was exactly what they did. The show's general mission statement was to show how ridiculously over-the-top the media's portrayal of current and pop cultural events can be, and god damn it, they did it! 
even if it meant pissing off the few people who were actually watching the show at the time, so it's an easy layup for Wrath. I don't want anybody out there thinking I hated this show because it was lowbrow, though. I actually like lowbrow humor once in a blue moon because sometimes the best laugh to experience is a cheap one. But there's a fine line between lowbrow and being edgy. Hype was neither of those things. Just because you can be edgy in comedy doesn't mean that you have to be all the time. And that was the show's biggest problem. The fact that they thought that they could shock the audience and use that shock as an asset, only for that asset to lose its value quickly. Hype earns five out of nine circles of telehell. Like I said earlier, most, if not all, of sketch comedy has a similar objective in mind to satirize the events of the day in a manner that could range anywhere from tongue-in-cheek to blisteringly scathing. As long as there were elements of satire and parody, just about any topic was fair game. The thing is, even though Hype was indeed doing their own thing in their own fractured mirror sort of way, the show still felt like a photocopy of a mimeograph, of a rotoscope, of a pencil tracing, of a finger painting, of what a sketch comedy show could be. All the elements were there, but at the end of the day, Hype just couldn't live up to... Well, you know. And because of this, the WB decided to stick to the tried and true at the turn of the century. Less emphasis on comedy, and more on dramas and action shows aimed for younger audiences. And so it would be from the year 2000 and onward. But not without a couple of hurdles in the way. Next time on Telehell, we promise we're going to get to another WB bomb in the coming weeks. But almost lost in the shuffle of this month is the fact that we're closing in on Christmas. So in order to keep with the theme for this month, our next subject is a Christmas special that happened to air on the WB. Considering the content of the special, it really shows. Based on the wacky Christmas song that's been a worldwide sensation for decades comes the hilarious hit-and-run holiday adventure. I got the best Christmas gift ever. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. I uh, couldn't control myself. Look for it on video cassette and DVD. Until Christmas Eve. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook, at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash telehellpodcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. Telehell.